to all listeners and welcome to the Services Insight podcast. My name is Petri Lakka from Valmet Services and hosting this episode this time. Those who listened to the previous episode probably uh, noticed that there is a connection between a good custom experience and well-managed agreement portfolio between the parties. Today we are continuing this theme and discussing the contract management for the services business and maybe a little bit more generally. Uh, therefore, I have invited two persons from World Commerce and Contracting Association to discuss this interesting topic. Tim Cummins is a president and Sally Geyer is a CEO in this association. So warmly welcome. Thank you very much. In the studio, I have also Eero Halmari, who is responsible for the agreement development in, in the services in the Valamit. So good to see you here again. Thank you, Petri. So let's let's start. Uh, and uh, the first natural question is that uh, could you, Sally, Tim, uh, explain a little bit what is World Commerce and Contracting Association? Of course, World Commerce and Contracting is a not-for-profit organization. We have over 70,000 members around the world. Uh, we've been in existence now for 21 years with a, a vision where all trading relationships deliver both social and economic benefit. So as an association, we are dedicated to identifying and promoting the commercial and contracting practices that deliver that social and economic value that we talk about in our vision statement. One of the things as CEO of the association that I am most proud of is the diversity of our membership. We represent both buy side and sell side. We have a cross industry representation and cross geography. We have presence in over 175 different countries. And it's really through that fantastic diversity that we are able to realize our vision and mission, that we're able to bring all of the parties to contracting to the table to really have those challenging conversations about how it needs to improve, how it delivers social and economic benefit. Thanks. Uh, actually, I, I checked your website. It's There are lots of information about you. And one interesting thing, actually, what I picked was that uh, uh, what I, I found, better contracts, better business, better society. Uh, how you see that? Uh, how, how that? How that flies in your in your kind of a society? <laughs> well, certainly all of those elements are, um, I suppose, um, common aspirations. But uh, there are many ways in which, uh, as I think we continue this discussion, will become evident that contracts really are um, a framework for so many things. I think uh, to give just one example, uh, an exciting example of a project we're involved with at the moment with the European Commission, uh, where the Commission has, has grown sort of frustrated with the inaccuracies and the delays that it takes to measure gross domestic products. So traditional ways of measuring economic health and wealth are outdated and, and inflexible. Um, so the, uh, the the project they initiated now, uh, close to three years ago, in fact, at its inception, was to shift to a method of measuring the European economy 
as an ecosystem of contracts. And I think the more we talk with business people, particularly with executives from business, the more they appreciate that actually their companies, their organizations are an ecosystem of contracts. And it is ultimately the way that we measure our wealth and our profitability. But I think more than that, to the point about society, there's also, as you well know, more and more push around increasing diversity, about bringing social benefit, about um, not just economics, but more importantly too, about the health of society and our planet. And contracts are increasingly playing an important role in enabling uh, a lot of the transparency that's needed, but also, of course, of building in terms and conditions that set the framework for that better society. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Tim. Actually, let's move on. And we are prepared together with uh, Eero quite many of these uh, questions to you interesting things. And so, Eero, if you can continue and, and start. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, interesting to hear what World CC does. And, and uh, I imagine having so many members and being involved with so many different industries. So, what kind of trends do you see in contracting um, in your point of view? Yes, well, uh, there are so many. And, uh, you know, Traditionally, many people have seen contracts as primarily legal instruments, a way to allocate risk. But, you know, that's really a mistake. We know and we've talked as an association for so many years about contracts being fundamentally economic instruments. Contracts are actually about economics. They're about achieving revenue or controlling spend. And to do that effectively, they need to provide operational guidance Contracts and agreements are a critical output in the overall sales or acquisition lifecycle. They help us to define and capture requirements, agree roles and responsibilities, establish levels of performance and determine how we're going to deal with change. They've been around for thousands of years and today contracts have become really prolific, um, even in industries or cultures where their past use was was limited. So why is that? Well, there are several trends elevating the role and importance of formal agreements. Um, among the most significant are the rapid shift away from products towards services. It links very much to what Tim was just talking about in the context of that EU Commission project, the recognition that GDP was a measurement that was very much focused around tangible product. Um, contracts really can support the intangible services environment. Over the last 25 years, trade in services has grown four times faster than trade in goods. And that trend is continuing with as a service commercial models taking hold across multiple industries as well. Um, You know, if they can avoid it, business executives no longer want to own things. They want asset light businesses. Um, And a major factor driving this shift is the speed of change, the volatility of markets. So, and and to flourish and survive, organizations need to be increasingly agile and increasingly adaptive. And so contracts equally need to change from being this legal instrument, this way to allocate risk to 
much more of a framework to support volatility, to to manage volatility, to manage change, um, and and to support good governance. Yeah. So so to say, uh, or can we say that uh, the contract is a tool for providing better service? Absolutely. It, it <laughs> indeed it should be. Yes, it can be. <laughs> of course, again, for many organizations that perhaps remains a little bit of an aspiration, but it is exactly again at the heart of uh, a lot of the advocacy we provide and of course in looking at the evolution of standards etc, these are the sorts of goals and objectives that those standards have. Something what we have seen actually is that uh, uh, this is maybe the most stable business in our industry. If we're thinking about uh, uh, the agreement type of the business, that we have a, a long relationship with the customers, that typically indicates that uh, we have a uh, we have a kind of a customer loyalty. Actually, not only customer loyalty, but the loyalty between the both parties, basically. And and somehow what what this indicates to, to us is really that. Uh, what is the amount of the loyal customer for 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 us, and and I think that it's also vice versa that uh, how many of the uh, let's say the service provider are the loyal for the our customers then, and I think I think that this is one of these indicators that uh, generally speaking in our industry follows quite carefully. Yes, I think that's a very interesting comment. I recall. You know, we work quite extensively, of course, with a lot of the big corporates, but I remember particularly a conversation we had with um, Shell. And uh, in fact, there was a, a person who'd been brought into the contract role. He'd previously been more of a sales and marketing role. So he came in thinking, your contracts are so boring. Do we need them? Um, he was convinced that the world would be a much happier place if we didn't have contracts. His perception of them, you know, as they took forever to agree, they were painful to negotiate. So he actually undertook an interesting benchmark because Shell, with a long history, had a, a whole range of customers who actually worked with Shell and had done for decades without contracts. And of course, they had other customers who definitely did have contracts. So he undertook quite an extensive satisfaction survey and he found the customers with contracts were actually much happier and much more loyal than the customers without contracts. And the big reason for that was, of course, the contract created this framework of certainty. People knew what the rules were uh, and they could easily operate to the rules. Whereas people without contracts, well, it really depended who you spoke to as to what answer you would get. So it, it, it does bring that, I think, stability, which is so important to a long-term relationship, as long as it is also adaptive. And we mustn't forget the point that contracts are a framework, yes, but it must be an adaptive framework. Aero works quite closely with this kind of information in, inside uh, inside our, our company. How you, Aero, see that? Uh, do, do we have the same kind of, a, well, the message from these data, what we have, that, uh, that uh, really the customer is more happy uh, when, when we have a contract than, than just a kind of a transactional business with them. Yeah, uh, well, I agree what Tim said, that there must be a, a portion of flexibility uh, 
built in uh, so that uh, you can uh, kind of uh, adapt to the circumstances. For a good example, last year with the COVID pandemic, I mean, uh, it might be difficult to um, follow the contract if you if you didn't have any flexibility. So my question to to you, Tim and Sally, is that uh, what kind of impact has this COVID pan- pandemic had in this industry or on or, or this uh, contracting world? Uh, uh, in a fascinating one, Eero. It's been really fascinating. I mean, I think that during the pandemic, organizations, they, they didn't only struggle to find their contracts. More importantly, they struggled to find what was in them or, or how they were performing. Um, you know, we discovered that the average corporation has contract-related data stored in 24 different systems. And in general, those systems just don't talk to each other. So you've got organizations with what we're increasingly talking about, data puddles all around. Um, And so they've suddenly grasped now how important it is to link them. The pandemic exposed just how little insight we have into our trading relationships, to the flow of information between customers and suppliers, to the management information we need to deal with change and to identify opportunities. It was very interesting um, that in, in many instances, and anecdotally, we heard from so many different members that through the pandemic, it was the relationship that mattered. And what world commerce and contract contracting talk about so much is we need to create a far better integration between the contract and the relationship. You know, too often the relationship exists in spite of the contract. What we need to shift to and what the pandemic has highlighted is this, the contract providing that framework for the relationship. So the two are interdependent of one another. Um, uh, Tim, I don't know whether you want to add. I mean, I think the the issue of data flow is a, is a really important one and perhaps one that we should um, further talk about. Yeah, I think uh, building on what Sally said, <clears throat> contracts definitely are acquiring a, a new level of importance. Um, they are under the spotlight in many leading corporations. And all that's leading to is uh, a great surge forward, really, in the digitization of contracts. Um, but digitizing, simplifying, automating, um, and reimagining key elements of their contract terms and contract models. Now, for many of us, that probably doesn't sound especially exciting, but in fact, you know, contracts really do lie at the heart of healthy and sustainable relationships. So um, this, as I said, has picked up, I think, a number of trends that were there before the pandemic but the pandemic has, without question, accelerated the urgency of things. And I think a lot of things that everybody was expecting would take probably another five years to happen <clears throat> are happening now and happening fast. Aaron and myself, we are coming from the service business and uh, quite often the t- terminology like a service design is in our, our kind of uh, wordings, but uh, 
you are talking about sometimes that I would like a little bit open this uh, contract design. Does it, what does it mean in practice, uh, this, this kind of a design of the contract? We know from the legal standpoint that what it, what it means, but for, for this kind of, let's say, pragmatic engineers, uh, what it means in practice then. Yeah, so, well, uh, contract design is one of my absolute passions. Um, and as somebody who has spent many, many years as a pra practitioner negotiating and drafting contracts, the, the, the world of contract design and visualization is one that has just really opened my eyes. And I know it's opening many people's eyes at the moment. There's a huge movement. You know, establishing the right form of contract and managing it well has enormous impact on corporate performance. Um, in your industry, the typical value erosion is between eight and 10% of contract value. Uh, you know, some of this erosion is, is obviously unavoidable, but the opportunity for from developing high performing contracting capability can add at least 5% to a bottom line. But the issue here, the underlying issue is that almost 90% of business people say they find contracts difficult or impossible to understand. So if they can't be understood, then surely that makes them of little practical use. This is a terrible number, 90%. <laughs> it's, terrible. it's just terrible. It's awful. And it's no wonder that contracts are then put in the drawer. That's what we talk about, isn't it? Well, we've signed the contract now. We'll put it in the drawer and we'll rely on the relationship, which is obviously what we've just been talking about. So... Um, Contract design is a really important trend, and actually it's a trend that owes much of its origin to Finland. Um, and there's growing interest and adoption of contract simplification, contract design. You know, <laughs> user-based design is not something new. Uh, and it, when you're designing a product, your, your first focus is who am I designing it for? Who exactly. needs to use this? I yeah. need to make it attractive for the user. But unfortunately, contracts have missed out on that opportunity. You hmm. know, we design contracts for lawyers. So what you are saying is that uh, with uh, proper contract design, the contract would be more understandable. Right? Absolutely. We need to design contracts for the people that are going to use those contracts. Typically, the people who are drafting the contract are not involved in the delivery of the project that that is um, that underlies that contract. So, we should not be designing contracts for the drafters and for the lawyers and for the law courts. We have to be designing contracts, creating operational guides to support successful outcomes, and that means structuring the language simplification. Um, it means it means incorporating visuals. It, it's really important that all of the myriad of stakeholders who touch the contracting process, who are instrumental in the delivery of success, understand what the contract says. And of course, that um, simplification can take multiple forms. We've we're seeing examples now of video contracts. Mm. Um, rather like, you know, the instructions we now get from IKEA, rather than being in some curious little manual that nobody can interpret, you know, we can now follow along with the video. But uh, as we digitize, 
Um, we will, of course, see machines extracting the data from contracts and actually flowing it out to the relevant stakeholders, the relevant users, um, and also, of course, actively monitoring their performance against it. So contracts, again, are, are going to become uh, much more driven by computable code, etc., uh, and will continue, I think, to evolve to some very, very different forms. So jumping into that topic, the data inside the contract, what kind of opportunity you see when pushing that trend forward and, and what kind of metrics are the key ones to follow? So contracts are full of data and you know it, it's data that it is is not effectively used as we talked about before we've recognized that contract related data sits in um 24 on average 24 different systems in an organization and and we have managed um to create these data puddles um that that are of of no <laughs> obviously no effective use at all um but tim the, the this issue of the the, the recognition mm. the realization of the the critical data that's held in the the contract and the contracting process mm. um and making sure that that's now visible and flowing not just internally within an organization but also across organizational boundaries now too Yes, that's right. Um, <clears throat> certainly, the debate has moved um, before organizations have even managed that internal consolidation. We're already hearing more and more about the need for the external data flows. Um, so, uh, you know, in the engineering sector, for example, there's tremendous conversation now about uh, customers having direct access into the uh, engineering um, applications of their supplier so that they can gather real-time data that they can actually actively monitor the success, the effectiveness of a project or a design activity, whatever it may be. That raises, of course, a whole range of contractual issues in its own right. But it doesn't stop there. One of the other big impacts of, of, of the pandemic is the recognition of the need for us to really be able to look more deeply into supply networks, supply chains, supply ecosystems. In other words, um, a lot of the threats to supply were not from our tier one suppliers, they could be from people that were tier two or tier three or tier four. Um, and lacking that visibility means we lack control. So tremendous conversation now about how far, how deep, uh, and indeed, what form some of those contract relationships should take, you know, whether I as, as an ultimate buyer want to have complete visibility into my supplier's supply chain and perhaps have some guarantee of flow through of data and information. So these are all truly live topics that are right at the heart of how we establish and manage our relationships. Sounds like uh, it's a like a co-development work between the supplier and the customer, right? Indeed, it would be far better that way. I think one of the challenges is that you know organizations typically have uh, been 
focused on developing their own systems and and those systems not talking internally or externally and and I couldn't agree with you more that you know co-creation of these platforms to enable data sharing um actually not just at a customer supplier level but but at an industry level increasingly and we are having conversations at that level too that you know this is this is going to be the future and and actually it's also the vision of the EU Commission with their project around modeling the economy as an ecosystem of contracts, you know, that requires the deployment of platform style technology that everybody, everybody can connect to. So it's a, you know, there, there's a there's a new wave, a new vision, um, but it does require a, a new mindset, a new way of thinking, um, one that is actually far more open and willing to share. Do we have any conflict with the confidentiality then if, if, if there is a kind of a, the atmosphere is more openness is needed, I, I think. What about the confidentiality, which typically is somehow tied to these kind of a contracts that uh, this is just for two parties and nobody else should should have any access to this kind of uh, information what we have in the contracts? Indeed, it is, as you can imagine, a massive issue and um, is going to keep all of those lawyers who are no longer having to draft individual agreement with their idiosyncratic terms that will keep them busy worrying instead about confidentiality of data. <laughs> um, it, it's a very real issue, very live issue. Uh, a lot of our work, particularly Sally's work, again, is focused on the myths of necessary confidentiality. You know, I think there is always this knee-jerk reaction that says, oh, everything is commercially confidential. Well, is it? You know, we even had this debate with one big oil and gas company recently where we were looking and trying to compare non-disclosure agreements within the industry. Um, and the lawyers declared that we cannot share our standard non-disclosure agreement with you because it's confidential. <laughs> So, of course, we actually went and looked in our archives and found we already had a signed non-disclosure <laughs> agreement with them anyway. <laughs> but, but, you know, we can often go to the realms of the ridiculous here. But it will be important. Uh, it is essential, indeed, that we understand the controls over our data and information. Um, but again, we are seeing now, of course, advanced technologies that really do give us those controls, that give us um, the ability to set very different levels of authority of access, uh, that obviously give us visibility as to who has had access to what when. So we're beginning to develop um, a lot of the, the controls that are going to support that more open um, environment. That's good. Jumping to maybe the next topic, uh, the value proposition for the service agreements and uh, the comparison between contract versus non-contract uh, selling and and uh, value maximization. Um, what are the key key elements here to recognize that um, how to maximize the value for the customers? With contracts, yeah, it's a very interesting question, and I think again it goes to the heart of a lot of what we we have already been talking about. Establishing the right form of contract and managing it well has an enormous impact um, on corporate performance. 
So, you know, we've, we've talked about the fact that we're living in this very fast changing service, services oriented world. Um, the contract often becomes the only tangible evidence of our relationship. It, it represents our commitment, but it also provides, um, you know, and where necessarily limits our obligations. So uh, what's interesting is research shows that about 40% of services agreements are disrupted by a significant disagreement, um, typically issues associated with scope, pricing or change management. So good contracts, well-established, well-negotiated contracts help us to avoid those disagreements and potential disputes. You know, again, it goes back to what we've been talking about, about creating an operational guide. We need to, you know, I, I often talk about contracting for the marriage, not for the divorce. Uh, unfortunately, so often our contract negotiations are focused on how we protect ourselves when the inevitably, inevitable goes wrong. Um, and when everything breaks down. So, so that's, that's the mindset we come to negotiations with. We, we, again, we need a pivot. We need a mindset shift that says, we need to negotiate this agreement for success. How are we going to structure this agreement for us, for customer and for supplier, to ensure that we can deliver success, that we recognize that there's going to be things that come along the way, that, that there's going to be challenges but that we've created an environment, a problem-solving environment, a, a no-blame culture, a, a, an effective communication environment where we can navigate our way through those problems, through those complexities. We accept change as normal. Um, and, and that really, you know, that's the value proposition of a services agreement. We, we cannot expect contracts to create um, absolute certainty. That they're not going to. We need to, we need to use contracts to help us manage our relationship through inevitable uncertainty. I think very well, very well put on that. There's also the aspect of um, it's not just about the contract being this um, very often reactive instrument to the environment we find ourselves in, um, but through data analytics. Organizations are increasingly using uh, individual agreements, portfolios of agreements to undertake much more where predictive analytics. And so taking examples from within your industry and from engineering industry more generally, uh, organizations beginning to look at uh, experience with a particular customer over time. You know, there are often patterns to their behavior that you, if you begin to do data mining within your contract, you can begin to see how frequently perhaps different customers do have disagreements over scope or to what extent particular customers may uh, be experiencing shifts in the payment trends or, uh, you know, so so beginning to do that dynamic analytic. Uh, we're working with organizations at the moment that are looking at how to use algorithms related to contract-related behavior to um, identify uh, contracts that are at risk. So we can begin to, to use Contracts are such a phenomenal data source. And of course, when we start to take portfolios of agreements, again, we can begin to see trending issues. As Sally said, 40% of them 
disrupted by a significant disagreement. Well, what's your percentage? Do you know? How does it stack up against others in the industry? Do you know? Do you know what the most frequent causes of the disagreements are? Might, if you did so, might that change the skill sets you bring to bear in drafting uh, requirements, in creating statements of work? Right now, you probably don't know. In our industry, <laughs> yeah, the trend seems to be we're just talking about this kind of complexity of the of the agreements. But what what is your advice? Because we see somehow that these these kind of outcome based agreements in our industries maybe the maybe the most challenging somehow at this point. If we're thinking about the kind of a, uh, the technical agreements or, or frame agreements, those are the in the kind of a different categories. But outcome based agreements. What is your advice? How to avoid this kind of a complexity of this these kind of agreements? Is there any good good advice uh, to use in our our industry? Well, we have to get good at doing it. <laughs> um, we also have to help our customers get better at doing it. Um, uh, outcomes are, are certainly a lot more demanding. Um, and of course, one of the fundamentals of moving to outcome is that there is implicitly a lot more trust. Mm. You know, yeah, many right. buyers have wanted to mandate, you know, they say, we want to save money. We've come to you because you're the best in the, the industry. But nevertheless, we're going to tell you precisely how to do this. <laughs> 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 but, yeah. but we do want you to do it cheaper than we can. <laughs> Uh, you know that there is there is really little logic to a lot of these discussions today. Undoubtedly, we have to train our, our sales team and our internal teams to have better conversations um, and to help steer uh, and guide. I think very often we're seeing much more in terms of almost a workshop-based environment. Um, Organizations are, are often very poor at aligning their contracts and contracting models with their business goals and objectives. We yeah. often find a complete misalignment. You know, you'll have a customer that says, oh, you know, we really must be agile. We really care about social value. We, um, we need, you know, partnerships with our suppliers. And then you get a procurement organization that doesn't seem to have ever heard that message at all and operates in a completely different mode. I think, you know, we are seeing more and more recognition that contracting needs to be much more of a team sport, that the right people need to be in the room to really get to the heart of what are our true goals and objectives here. That has to be the framework for determining what is the right contracting model, what are the roles and responsibilities that are going to be performed to meet that. Um, and, you know, one of the pieces of good news, perhaps, as a consequence of the pandemic, is that we've become much more flexible in how those conversations are held. Mm. You know, in the old world, we used to have to send a big team off to the customer's premises where everybody would sit for two or three days until the deal was done or whatever. We can now, through use of technology, 
involve a much greater diversity of stakeholders. We can bring in unnecessary experts if they only need to be there for 15 minutes. That's fine. We would never have flown them somewhere for 15 minutes, but we can fly them in um, using Zoom or Teams or whatever we use. So yeah, I think that's we need right. to reimagine the shape of negotiation and the engagement of the people that are needed to get to that outcome definition. Uh, on the positive side, I, I think uh, outcome-based contract is a, a good tool for increasing the flexibility uh, because, in essence, what it means is that we are or, or the the provider provides the results and not the goods, and if that's the the goal, then it doesn't really matter how or what kind of services or, or, or mm. products are provided if the results are there. Mm. So that minimizes the significance of the kind of product uh, agreements. Of enables innovation and improvement. But it does, as, as Tim has rightly said, you know, we, we cannot reiterate enough that it requires a level of trust and belief on both sides and and it requires exceptional communication. That that is fundamental to the success of of outcome based um, projects. That's what we have seen. That more we have a discussion with the with the with the partners and and customers. I think that that brings a kind of a kind of a good collaboration and bond between the parties. And it's typically it takes, it takes time to this kind of, a, of building course. the building yeah. trust. Yeah. It's interesting, this issue of time. It, it does. Um, of course, it, it, this relates into uh, a topic we've discussed previously of friction points. You know, yes. where we spend our time has, uh, you know, we need to be selective about where we want to spend time. Um, certainly, Getting to clear agreement around the scope, the goals, and, and moving towards an outcome-based model does take more time up front. Um, interestingly, our findings, our research findings are that the more time we spend actually getting to clarity over requirements and alignment of our capability with those requirements, it does actually shorten the contract negotiation. Because if we built that confidence up front, actually a lot of the risk terms, which often take forever to negotiate, become a little bit less um, important to people because we built that level of confidence. But more importantly, of course, it can dramatically reduce the amount of time resource that we have to put in post-award because we have that clarity. Otherwise, of course, we can often stumble around and start disagreeing. This is in scope. No, it's not in scope, mm -hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's where we spend time very often that alters here. Uh, and the evidence suggests that if we do this stuff well up front, the overall yeah. reduction and resource saving is very significant. And I suppose also it requires that uh, the sales team and the operation team also communicate well together. So what has been sold and what can we deliver? Exactly so. It has been interesting discussion. Do you still have something on your mind that we should ask from our, our guests? Uh, well, now, 
Yeah, we, we discussed now a little bit about the sales and delivery process, but there is also the contract management process kind of in between or, or supporting these two. So can you open up a little bit that topic? What does contract management mean as a function? <laughs> Broader question. That is, a, that is an amazing question. <laughs> we have five minutes left, <laughs> roughly so. <laughs> <laughs> If you were to put 10 people in a room and ask them to define contract management, you get 20 different <laughs> okay. answers. I um, uh, look, I mean, I, I think what's, what's really important, and it is important to have clarity over what we mean by contract management. You know, for some, contract management is, is what happens post-award. Um, it, it's what, what happens after signature. For some, contract management is about the entire life cycle. It is about the pre and the post. Um, uh, you know, ultimately, well, let, let's let's talk a little bit uh, about the entire life cycle. I think it's important. Mm. You know, and and um, why is contract management important? The contracting needs to be looked at as a life cycle. Um, too often, the there's operations happening in silos. Um, so what happens pre-award then gets chucked over a fence into a post-award environment with no kind of communication, absolute disconnect. Um, so you, you again, you create friction points through, through those silos that you're automatically creating. It is absolutely critical to understand contracting as a life cycle event. Um, what we also know from our research is that value is lost through different phases of that contracting life cycle significant value is lost in that post-award environment. So if you're talking about contract management as a post-award activity, it is really, really critical. It is a strategic activity for any organization. Too often, contract management has been just um, left as a as rather a sort of afterthought administrative activity. You know, it's so interesting when you look at um, the way organizations and people behave in that contracting life cycle, you get to signature and everybody cheers. Everybody says, wow, that's amazing. The deal's done. It's fantastic. Let's all go out and drink coffee or drink champagne, whatever it is we want to do. Um, but of course, that's just the beginning. <laughs> and well, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, it's, it, it's so important to celebrate a contract signature but it's really important to recognize that the hard work hasn't really yet begun and and um, and value is lost in that post award post award environment so really um recognizing that as a strategic activity and what's interesting is that technology is starting to play a huge part um in in post award contract management now the, um you know fantastic platforms that are now um supporting um, automatic extraction of obligations and um, dissemination around the organization, for example. So, you know, we can see technology start to help raise the profile of that post-award activity as well. I think, you know, another fundamental point here is that organizations that really don't know who does contract management, um, it is actually a myriad of people. 
I mean, there are people in finance who are involved in contract management, clearly there are people in operations, in engineering, uh, people in sales very often continue to be involved in aspects of contract management. So we have these undefined roles being undertaken by typically untrained people um, with no real connectivity to each other. And we then wonder why our contracts don't always go well. Yeah, that's the challenge, yeah. Um, so it, it, this is, of course, you know, nobody is suggesting that we can completely centralize and consolidate the discipline of contract management. But what we do need to do is understand much better what are the different, if you like, buckets of activity that are being performed in the management of contracts and how do we make those more interconnected, more coherent, uh, as Sally has said, not just internally, but actually also with our counterparty. Um, uh, technology is absolutely right, it's a game changer here, and we need to take advantage of it. But in order to take advantage of it, we do have to better understand and analyze what actually is the process, who are the different yeah. players, who are the different data owners, and how do we equip them with the right information and the right tools to make good decisions. And communication is also key here. Thanks, Tim, Tim and Sally. Probably we could go on for even longer this discussion, but uh, but time is time is running out. I want to thank you for for good discussion, and and I maybe come back to this uh, what you have on your website: better contract, better business, better society. And my addition would be better custom experience. Also, would that how that sounds? Absolutely. You know, it's uh, it, of course, it's about better customer experience. It's about a better experience, full yes. stop. Uh, it, it needs to be a good experience, whatever side of the contract you're operating on and whatever part you're playing in that contracting process. It's all about experience. Thanks, uh, Sally, Tim and, uh, and Eero for your, for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.